Hello and welcome to Radio Free Canada. This is your host, Kevin Annett, and we're back. This is Sunday, September the 10th, 2017. Now today on the show, an historic announcement and report issued by the International Tribunal of Crimes of Church and State in Brussels and New York this past week. Last Tuesday, a report on the continuity of genocidal crimes in Canada, the hard evidence, and an appeal to the people and governments of the world. The scathing report exposed a century-old ongoing genocide by Canada, Great Britain, and the Vatican, and calls for comprehensive economic and political sanctions against these powers, including the issuing of international peacekeepers to come to Canada to protect the eyewitnesses, the mass grave sites, and the key organizers in this campaign to expose genocide by church and state. Now this past week, I, Kevin Annett, and others have met with United Nations and European Union officials to promulgate this report and to mobilize support within the communities to finally confront and shut down these genocidal powers, starting with their sponsors in Rome at the Vatican and London with the Crown of England. It's one of the reasons we are not live today. Uh, we are meeting with these officials and community organizers, especially in Canada in the Indigenous community, to find direct ways of finally shutting down the United Catholic and Anglican churches and their government and political sponsors. Because especially of the role of the on, in the ongoing genocide on the west coast of Canada especially, and the involvement of these churches, corporations and governments in the ongoing trafficking and murder of Indigenous people. All of this is contained within the report. You can read it online at www.itccs.org. Now, also on the show after this will be a presentation on the purpose and nature of our struggle, looking at ways of applying our lessons over the last number of years to go and beyond mere defensive reactions to how to strike at the system itself. Those uh, two announcements and uh, reports will be on today's show, and we'll be back again live on September 17th with Kolya Clark, a community organizer in New York. Uh, but as for today, in closing, I remind people once again to not just listen to this report, but put it into action. There's uh, ways to do that. You go to itccs.org, murderbydecree.com. A lot of the evidence is right there. You can also write to us, republicofcanata at gmail.com, because one of the key points of this report is while it's fine and good to make appeals to governments, we understand that by and large these same powers are affected by the same kind of money and corporate inf influence behind the Vatican, the Crown of England, and these other criminal actors. For that reason, the report issues a call for what they call community sanctions against these powers, that is, direct actions by people in the community, making citizen arrests against known child-raping priests and even suspected ones, which we have the right to, to do under the law withholding money, seizing the funds and the property of these churches. All of this is legal and perfectly lawful uh, under the international law, but also the criminal warrants issued after the conviction of the Pope and others in 2013. And so all of that is possible to do. The focus on community sanctions is right there in the report. We urge you to read it, itccs.org, and then take action in your community. Thank you for tuning in to Day. Please come back again next week where we'll be live. Until then, stay strong and stay clear. This is Kevin Annett. I thank you. A report issued by the International Tribunal of Crimes of Church and State on September 5, 2017. A report on the continuity of genocidal crimes in Canada, an appeal to the people and governments of the world. 
based on evidence found at www.murderbydecree.com. Preamble This report is written with the blood of countless Aboriginal children and of those who have died to bring the truth of their fate to light. It is the culmination of a 20-year citizen-led campaign to document, confront, and prosecute the deliberate genocide of non-Christian Aboriginal people in Canada by the Vatican, the British Crown, the Government of Canada, and the Roman Catholic, Anglican, and United Church. The evidence in this report is based on the sworn testimony of 358 survivors of the murderous Indian residential schools where over 65,000 children died between the years 1889 and 1996, and by exhaustive documentation found at MurderByDecree.com, as well as the testimonies of eyewitnesses to ongoing crimes against humanity in Canada. It is something more than a miracle that this report has survived the many years of official lies, misinformation, violence, and intimidation waged by these churches and governments against their surviving victims and a handful of truth-seeking Canadians. Despite the enormous and unrelenting campaign of state terror waged against him since 1995, the former United Church clergyman Kevin Annett has been the mainstay and inspiration of this movement at the cost of his family, his livelihood, and his safety. If not for Kevin's unflagging devotion and courage and his heroic persistence against every imaginable odd, this report, as well as the limited compensation and acknowledgement offered by the Canadian government to Indian residential school survivors, would never have come about. We must also acknowledge the seven Aboriginal members of the ITCCS who have died at the hands of the police and others in the course of publicly surfacing this enormous crime and confronting the churches responsible. Chief Louis Daniels, Edna Phillips, Harriet Nahani, Harry Wilson, Johnny Bingo Dawson, William Coombs, and Ricky Lavalley. Their memory and witness, along with the lives of 65,000 children and those who continue to disappear and fall, will always be honored. The report itself follows. 1. A master plan by the Vatican and the Crown of England acting through the government and churches of Canada to exterminate domestic indigenous nations has been in operation since November 25, 1910. This plan was set in motion and maintained by the Crown of England and its Privy Council Office and the Roman Catholic, Anglican and United Church of Canada, along with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP, the Judiciary and private corporations. As a plan of deliberate church-sponsored genocide, it has been modeled on and tied to similar crimes by the Vatican against non-Catholic peoples across the world. 2. This Canadian plan consisted of a state and church-funded program of systemic intergenerational genocide based initially within the so-called Indian residential school system, modeled on a Jesuit program, and established with state approval and by order and council on July 1, 1920. That system killed more than half of the children incarcerated within it until it formally ended in 1996, or more than 65,000 children. It also served as the launching pad for a general campaign of extermination of the non-assimilated Aboriginal tribes, a campaign that continues to the present time. This genocide has accounted for the massive depopulation of more than 95% of the original native nations, predominantly on Canada's west coast, a killing off of between 1 and 2 million people since the year 1850. 3. 
While the general aim of this genocide was the elimination of all non-Christian native peoples, its associated purpose was the extirpation of traditional indigenous kinship networks and the matriarchal clan mother system of authority that ensured indigenous control over lands and resources. This was achieved by wiping out the native family system and specifically traditional women and their children. That traditional system was in effect destroyed by the Indian residential schools between 1889 and 1996 along with the majority of indigenous languages and traditional land bases. 4. Despite the phasing out of Indian residential schools after 1972, this genocidal plan intensified at the hands of different branches of the Canadian government and agencies like Catholic-run adoption and foster care groups. Every level of government and church in Canada has continued the active destruction of Indigenous families and their culture, including child welfare and family court systems, and the state-funded Aboriginal band councils themselves. The chiefs of these councils have played a key role in eradicating any lingering Indigenous identity or authority and control over traditional lands and resources. They also routinely engage in the terrorizing and exploiting of their own people, including through the trafficking and sale of tribal children. These so-called chiefs are doing these crimes at the behest and in the payment of the Canadian government and resource extractive multinational corporations from America, Japan, and China. 5. The expulsion of all remaining traditional native tribes from their west coast lands assumed greater urgency as the 20th century closed and the world demand for hydroelectricity, timber, minerals, and other British Columbia resources intensified. Consequently, the period since 1990 has witnessed a rapid escalation of violence against Indians and a return to the brutal methods of the early colonial period. By the 1990s, large numbers of Aboriginal families in northern British Columbia began disappearing at the hands of death squads manned by off-duty RCMP officers and local policemen, as well as third-party contractors hired by the federal government, its Aboriginal frontmen and foreign corporations. 6. By 1995, when the incipient ITCCS campaign to expose residential school crimes began making headlines in the Canadian media, stories of these disappearances of Native families were also proliferating. Together, these exposures provoked a public misinformation campaign by the RCMP designed to conceal the extent and the nature of the disappearances. This information was only partly successful and prompted the Government of Canada to take firmer measures to erase any public awareness of the ongoing genocide of Native families. It did so by means of a secret government cabinet directive dated April 3, 1998. 7. This directive by the Liberal government of Prime Minister Jean Chrétien was launched barely one week before the opening of the first independent inquiry into residential schools, school crimes in Canada, the United Nations-affiliated IRAM Tribunal held in Vancouver. The directive consisted of an official plan of state terror that was aimed at Aboriginal activists, residential school survivors, and the public campaign led by the future ITCCS North American Field Secretary, Kevin Annett, who organized the URAM Tribunal. The Krechan Terror Plan authorized the use of black ops methods of illegal monitoring, smears, disruptions, and violence against Kevin Annett and these targeted groups, including the elimination of individuals who held knowledge or evidence of genocidal acts by Canadian church and state employees. This cabinet directive was never revoked and has caused the death of at least seven native activists who have been assassinated by RCMP operatives since 1998, including members of the ITCCS network.
8. The Cabinet Directive in question was issued for implementation by the Federal Government to E-Division of the RCMP in Vancouver in the first week of June 1998, just prior to the convening of the URM Tribunal on June 12, 1998. In fact, the disruption of the URM Tribunal was the first and primary goal of this state terror campaign, according to statements made by RCMP E-Division Inspector Peter Montague, who led the disruption campaign. This disruption became especially active after the tribunal gave a public airing to the first reports of organized murder and child trafficking among northern British Columbia tribes by chiefs in the pay of the federal government. Another target of the state terror plan was the Gustafson Lake natives in central British Columbia who, after defending the sacred burial lands of their people, were subjected to a covertly organized military assault and follow-up smear campaign by Peter Montague and the RCMP during that same summer of 1998. 9. It is important to note that this Cretan State Terror Directive of April 3, 1998, was aimed at anyone who threatened to expose the historic and ongoing genocide of Native people. Between 2006 and 20, 2012, seven key eyewitnesses and prominent Indigenous activists of the ITCCS network in Vancouver and Winnipeg were murdered at the hands of of this directive. Harriet Nahani, Johnny Bingo Dawson, Ricky Lavalley, Harry Wilson, William Coombs, Edna Phillips, and Chief Louis Daniels. In the process of its state terror campaign, the Chrétien Directive disrupted and marginalized the movement to prosecute Canadian church and state for residential school crimes. But for many years it also concealed the concealing or disappearance of Aboriginal families across British Columbia. For example, after the June 1998 tribunal had been attacked and neutralized by RCMP operatives, the same agents, under the direction of RCMP Inspector Peter Montague, performed a similar destruction of the community effort to, identif and, uh, to identify the growing numbers of missing Native women across BC and in Vancouver's downtown east side. 10. This state-level attack on a genuine missing people's inquiry was prompted by the fact that, by this point, in early 1999, startling new evidence began to surface that tied the identity of some of the present-day killers of Native people with men and women who worked in the Indian residential school system. In fact, our work has revealed that the present leadership of the Anglican, Roman Catholic, and United Church of Canada is either directly implicated in residential school-era crimes or is actively protecting those who are, and that these same predators are still engaged in the systemic rape, trafficking, and killing of children. It is therefore clear that a continuity of crime exists that spans decades and links the church-instigated residential school atrocities with the rape, torture, and disappearance of present-day natives, especially women and children. That is, the crime has never stopped and is being protected by the same unholy alliance of church, police, and government. This no doubt explains that trio's unrelenting hostility and sabotage efforts towards the ITCCS campaign and its chief public spokesman and symbol in North America, Kevin Annett. 11. Our continuing investigations reveal that many of the men and women who trafficked, tortured, and killed children in the Indian residential schools and who are still preying on Aboriginal women and children are also members or affiliates of the elite Vancouver Club at 915 West Hastings Street in Vancouver. Their odious ranks include three Supreme Court judges, a battery of lawyers, church officials and corporate officers, a former prime minister, 
a Catholic Archbishop and senior members of the RCMP and the Canadian military. Virtually all of these individuals are practicing members of the Anglican, Catholic, or United Church that ran the residential school death camps. Many of these men have also been identified by a former Canadian Security Intelligence Service operative as participants in the murderous Pickey's Palace torture and snuff film ring, including two politicians who now serve in the Canadian Senate, former Vancouver Mayor Larry Campbell and Aboriginal puppet leader Patrick Brazo. 12. The general purpose and consequence of this Chrétien State Terror Directive has been to protect these men and camouflage their links to the residential school era and to present-day corporate power brokers. But what cannot be concealed is the clear and direct connection between the highest levels of governmental, police, corporate, church, and judicial power in Canada and these deliberate genocidal crimes, as well as their ties to similar crimes in other countries. There is, for example, a clear and direct link between the Thailand and China-based organ and human trafficking industry and the disappearance of Aboriginal women in British Columbia. 13. By 2007, once these connections had been firmly proven by our campaign and by the growing testimonies of many Aboriginal eyewitnesses, the Conservative government of Stephen Harper relied on the still-operative Chrétien plan to put a final end to these exposures by placing a definitive spin and containment over the whole issue of past and present genocide in Canada. It did so through its own controlled in-house committee, an elaborate deception and obstruction of justice misnamed the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, or the TRC. 14. The TRC was modeled on a standard black ops mis misdirection campaign to create a false narrative on a crime by burying evidence, silencing eyewitnesses, discrediting truth-tellers, and exonerating the guilty. In partnership with the three churches responsible for the residential school's genocide and with the active compliance of the world media, the United Nations, and every level of judiciary and political power in Canada, the TRC buried the truth and the evidence of that genocide with remarkable ease and success. It did so in order to mask the continuance of that crime, especially among West Coast Native nations. Accordingly, the TRC was followed closely by a second cover-up effort by the present Liberal Government of Canada, known as the National Missing Women's Inquiry. 15. It is clear that this latest stage-managed inquiry is a further enactment of the Chrétien plan to eliminate all witnesses and evidence to Canada's final solution of its Indigenous population that began in 1910. The so-called Missing Women's Inquiry is operating through the very police agencies, including the RCMP, that are responsible for the killing of targeted Native women and their families, and that have concealed these crimes for many years. 16. Like the TRC, the Missing Women Inquiry operates through hand-picked government loyalists who lack any judicial power or mandate to bring charges against the guilty or conduct any genuine investigation. The pseudo-inquiry is actually halting genuine efforts to reveal the crimes and who is responsible for them, and the silencing eyewitnesses who dispute the official account accounts of the disappearances. As a controlled stage show run by the very powers responsible for making Native women go missing, the inquiry is moribund, having released no report of any of its supposed findings in the over two years of its shadowy existence. We believe this is to ensure that the final destruction of Indigenous peoples and their land base will proceed with maximum profit to the corporate and governmental interests behind that destruction. 17.
As proof of this the, is the burial and obfuscation by the inquiry of a key fact, namely that the West Coast disappearances are the result of specific racial and political targeting and are not random killings. This point was established by our own investigations as early as the spring of 2003. That is, the vast majority of missing Aboriginal women are from matrilineal clan-led families that traditionally control the resources and land bases of the different Indian nations. In short, their killing was in fact the deliberate political assassination of the remaining traditional leaders of West Coast tribes, whose resistance stands in the way of resource-hungry corporations. In that sense, these latest murders are simply the continuation of Canada's long tradition of overt extermination when it comes to Indigenous people and their leaders. 18. These crimes have a darker aspect, involving satanic ritualism that the Iram Tribunal documented in June 1998 during this inquiry into the Indian residential schools. The so-called Ninth Circle, a Catholic sacrificial cult formed in the 17th century by the Jesuits and still in operation under the directives of the highest level of the Vatican, functioned in the Canadian residential schools from their inception. The routine trafficking, torture, and sacrificial murder of children was practiced in the Anglican, Catholic, and United Church Indian schools, and it implicates senior members of the government and the British royal family and these churches. The same Ninth Circle continues to kill with impunity today, including on West Coast native lands heavily endowed with valuable resources. It is evident that the same forces traditionally behind the theft of Aboriginal lives and lands continue to ritually kill and traffic native children. 19. Behind its mask of beneficence, as epitomized by its fresh-faced spin-doctoring Prime Minister Trudeau, Canada is a closed and repressive society that is actively exterminating the remaining traditional indigenous people within its borders. It is doing so according to its foundational genocidal program of 1910 and the 1998 Chrétien Black Ops Directive, and with the act of collusion and in the interest of mostly Chinese and American resource corporations. 20. As a state-led campaign, this culmination of the Canadian genocide has judicial sanction as is evident in not only the refusal of any Crown Court to prosecute any person or agency for genocidal acts, but by the act of victimization by the same courts of anyone who exposes these crimes. In short, there is no avenue for relief or justice for survivors of this genocide within Canada or in the agencies of the United Nations, which have turned their back on the reality of this ongoing crime by Christian and corporate Canada. 21. Accordingly, it falls on the global community to stand upon international law and bring political and economic sanctions against Canada, the Crown of England, the Vatican, and their church and corporate associates for their proven crimes against humanity. Canada and these powers are rogue bodies whose actions threaten not only the innocent, but the sovereignty and peace of all nations. This threat is evident in the continued standing policy known as Crimen Solicitanus within the Roman Catholic Church, that subverts child protection laws and the power of sovereign governments by requiring that every Catholic in the world protect in-house child abusers and conceal child abuse and trafficking from the police. The Anglican Church of England is governed by the same policy, as will any non-Catholic church that reun reunifies with the Roman papacy, according to the One World Church Plan of the convicted war criminal Jorge Bagaglio, alias Pope Francis. Since its enactment in 1929, Crimen Solicitanus has encouraged and caused the systematic murder of children in Canada, America, Ireland, Croatia, 
across Europe and around the world to continue unchecked. As long as such institutionalized criminality against children is allowed to legally operate, no country can claim to be protecting its own citizenry or its own lawful sovereignty. 22. There is a clear moral and legal obligation of sovereign nations to restrain and punish proven criminal regimes like Canada, the British Crown, and the Vatican. We therefore call upon nations to do so, using their full police, military, and legal machinery. We are especially directing this call to President Vladimir Putin, his government, and the people of Russia, and all countries outside the Western Bloc. 23. Specifically, our ITCCS Directorate and our its affiliates in seven countries ask that these governments undertake the following actions. To commence comprehensive economic and political sanctions against Canada, England, and the Vatican as convicted genocidal regimes, including by seeking their formal censure and expulsion from the General Assembly of the United Nations, and by imposing a trade and tourism embargo on these powers and by dispatching peacekeeping forces to Canada to protect Aboriginal eyewitnesses, targeted families, and ITCCS activists who are confronting these crimes, and to arrest convicted and suspected war criminals in Canada. Also, to dispatch professionally trained forensic teams to assist in the uncovering and analysis of crime scenes and mass graves at the site of former Indian residential schools and Indian hospitals across Canada, and finally, to convene domestic and international courts of justice to indict and prosecute these individuals and corporate institutions responsible for the, these and other crimes against humanity. We also call upon the citizens of the world and of Canada to commence their own direct community sanctions against these governments and their churches in accordance with the Nuremberg Principle that compels citizens to neither fund nor cooperate with proven murderous regimes or organizations these sanctions include denying taxes and any funds to these governments and to the Roman Catholic and United Church of Canada, performing citizens' arrests against known or suspected child-raping clergy and their accomplices, and peacefully seizing the property and wealth of these churches as convicted transnational criminal organizations. In the weeks ahead, our delegation will be bringing this appeal and our evidence to the people, government, educators, jurists, and media of the world. Those of us who have revealed and confronted these crimes within Canada have been assaulted, harassed, imprisoned, and censured by every level of government, the police, and the courts, and we've been prevented from operating freely within our own country. Seven of our comrades have died from foul play at the hands of the police and others. We are therefore bringing this truth beyond Canada's borders for the sake of the army of innocents who have died and will, who can, will continue to die if justice is not done. Here we stand. We can do no other issued today, September 5th, 2017, by the ITCCS Central Directorate, and with the endorsement of elders of the Anishinaabe, Mohawk, Cree, Métis, Cowichan, and Squamish Indigenous Nations across Canada, and by ITCCS affiliates in Canada, America, Ireland, England, and Serbia. You can see the entire transcript, including the footnotes and sources, at www.itccs.org. We thank you. Hello, this is Kevin Annis. My lecture today is entitled The Purpose and Nature of Our Struggle. This is for those listening who have moved from theory and discussion to action. We begin with a quote from Sun Tzu in The Art of War. Whoever grasps and holds onto the essential energy, or chi, of a situation will control the outcome of any battle and the fate of any opponent, no matter how powerful they are. 
and from the book of Corinthians, what is nothing has been chosen to bring to nothing all the things that are. Imagine for a moment the present global tyranny not simply as a visible system of corporatocracy, violence, and corruption, but as a vast energy transfer, sucking the vitality and life from billions of people and the biosphere itself into one massive machine. Call that machine whatever you like. Its nature and behavior is geared towards a single purpose, and that is the absorption of all life into itself. It is one enormous feeder, and we are its morsels. To first understand this simple truth, it grips us inwardly to stop this insatiable complex and in our participation in it, far better than can mere political analysis. But understanding alone does not free us to act. All interactions in our universe involve an essential energy that guides the movement of every particle and determines every outcome. Sun Tzu called this energy Qi. Plato saw it as a pre-existing essence behind a mask of appearances. Some people like to call it God. Regardless of its nomenclature, this source that binds our reality is like a mighty river which can either sweep us along helplessly or be utilized by us to alter reality. Every ruler understands this simple fact, even while the rest of us have been trained not to grasp it, and thereby are kept blind in a harness held by a few. Those who understand and utilize this chi are able to control the thoughts and actions of the multitudes of humanity only as long as the latter are devoid of their own access to chi. The primary means of stripping humanity of attaining this normally inherent power is by using fear and trauma-based conditioning at a very young age to cause people to habitually surrender and defer at every level to some higher external power, and thereby transfer their own particle of chi to that power. Such an unending energy transfer from the many to the few is the basis of all elite rule in our world. And yet, such a system is inherently unstable. Since following natural law, the nature of chi, as with any energy system, is to disseminate equally and be held in common, and not privately, a fact that invalidates as contrary to the natural order all individual rule, whether by kings, presidents, popes, or corporate oligarchies. We know from our own experience that the loss of chi from the many to the few is not simply unnatural and disharmonious. It is so constant and systemic that it cannot be resisted by individual effort alone since our individuality has been conditioned to operate habitually rather than consciously. We think like we eat, automatically, and therefore without chi. For instance, when faced with political repression by the rulers, so-called rulers, our first reflex is to surrender our chi once again to them by pressuring them to give us justice through ritualized protest and petitioning or relying on their courts and government. We don't seem capable of shifting our attention away from the chi holders simply because we have no working experience of what our own chi actually is. And so, like any lost child, we cannot try to change our world without continually deferring to the so-called powers that be, whether that be a sympathetic judge, or a progressive politician, or even a spiritual advisor. Our imprinted slavery makes it impossible for us to collectively reclaim ourselves and our world. Of course, erasing Erasing a conditioned imprint may begin with the individual, but it is not manifested individualistically, but collectively. For collectivity is the nature of universal chi, which binds all phenomena in a mutual garment of destiny and interconnectedness. In any successful revolution, the personal awakening 
of individuals inexorably causes a collective ripple effect in many other hearts and minds that generates a new kind of group chi or group mind, one that is unalterably opposed to the chi of the rulers. This new energy system is a living and working counterculture that draws energy and power away from the rulers and their system and returns it to the multitude of the people, provided the people can hold on to it as a group by retaining their own new separate identity. The very nature and purpose of our struggle today is to achieve precisely such a new energy dynamic and allow all of humanity to reclaim their natural chi and the collective liberty that it bestows. This purpose must continually guide all of our thoughts, words, and deeds. Well, how do we apply chi knowledge or chi knowledge to our present situation? The Chinese general Sun Tzu, writing thousands of years ago, had the best practical understanding of how such an awareness of the essential energy behind reality can and must be used in concrete struggles, especially in war and politics. As he said in his book, The Art of War, quote, nothing is permanent in life except conflict and change. One either masters the chi of one's opponent or is mastered by it, unquote. If we set aside our Western philosophical bias that dualistically separates matter from spirit, we recognize that Sun Tzu is accurately describing the dance that occurs in any conflict with an adversary. For as he writes, enemies like opposites are mutually dependent on one another, being part of a greater unity and purpose. Thus enemies are defeated not by their abolition, but by their absorption into a greater whole. Unquote. In short, we can win any engagement not by outnumbering or crushing an opponent, but by redirecting his own essential energy into the outcome we desire. Redirecting. A classical example of the power of such an approach is found in our own campaign in Canada to indict church and state for genocide. That campaign consisted of a, of a few dozen of us in three cities, but it successfully forced Canada and the Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches to respond on our terms by admitting their crime and helping to commence their own dissolution. For by acceding to a new reality, the old matrix called Christian Canada surrendered to us its chi and helped energize our agenda of disestablishing crown and church, a process that is now continuing to unfold. This new power alignment is crumbling Canada and laying the basis for a new chi arrangement that we call the common law Republic of Kanata. What achieved this victory were not our numbers, but our strategic position, our visible persistence, and our ability to outmaneuver and redirect the chi of the system, armed as we were, but with an undeniable truth and evidence that kept both church and state constantly fearful and on the defensive. Similarly, but even more stunning, is the other greater victory that flowed from this first one, namely the blow against the Vatican and Rome, and our historic deposing of Pope Benedict on February 11, 2013, by our public conviction of him and other top Catholic officials for the same genocide. The successful mastering by us of a hugely more powerful opponent's chi happened because our small movement deliberately used, utilized a strategy of guerrilla warfare, which is summed up by Sun Tzu thus, quote, First, when I am few and my enemy is many, I can use the few to strike the many because those whom I battle are restricted, being larger and more unwieldy. Their strength thereby becomes their weakness. Second, do not respond to the ground your enemy has prepared for you, but instead shape their ground. Then they have no alternative but to be led by you, as if it was their own idea. Third, 
Hide the time of battle from an enemy and make what he loves and defends your first objective. By aiming at and seizing what the enemy holds dear, their greater strength and plans are rendered useless, and they must stop and respond on your terms no matter how small are your forces." Unquote. And so, in this manner, on March 17, 2008, during Palm Sunday services, two of our action groups occupied without warning the largest Catholic cathedrals in Vancouver and Toronto, making headlines across Canada with our demand that the genocidal churches be prosecuted and forced to return the remains of the Indian children they killed. We also announced that we are commencing an international court action to charge Canada with genocide. Less than a month later, the government announced for the first time an inquiry into the missing residential school children. This led directly to the official parliamentary apology just two months later and the subsequent official admission by Ottawa that genocide did indeed occur in Canada. By striking unexpectedly at the Achilles heel of the main instigator of genocide, behind its own lines, amidst its most sacred ritual, we not only shocked and frightened the enemy, but created the field of battle and forced our opponent in its fear to respond on our terms. We defined the field of battle. Since then, no one in Canada has dared anymore to deny that children were killed in the residential schools and that it was indeed genocide. A few of us thereby reshaped the national narrative or in Sun Tzu's words, we mastered the chi of an enormous adversary and redirected it on our terms. Similarly, the shockwave that deposed Pope Benedict has continued to spread, forcing four other resignations by top Vatican officers named in our common law court indictment, and compelling an enormous and desperate public relations effort by the present Pope Francis to shore up Rome's collapsing credibility. What is this but living proof of the ability of a small force to absorb the chi of the biggest and oldest enemy imaginable, the Vatican Incorporated? Well, compare these stunning victories by a handful of people with the negligible results of many thousands of protesters standing impotently outside government buildings and waving placards, and thereby surrendering their collective chi once again to their adversary. For the unstated message of any group of protesters to some external power is this. We acknowledge your authority. You have the power, not us. All we ask is that you change things for us. Well, that's not change on the terms of the people, but accommodation to elite rule, regardless of the outcome. This impotence called protest, like voting or going through the courts, is in truth the clearest example of the energy-sucking nature of the machine that relies on such controlled opposition to feed its own chi. In reality, no such diminishing of people's own chi is ever required. For the, the ability of any size group to capture the chi of the government in any corporate regime has been proven in practice by us and others. In energetic terms, this constitutes a reclaiming of power in order to rebalance chi, whose nature is to disseminate and to be shared equally. This approach is the only sure means of changing the nature of power itself and bringing down tyranny permanently and not simply changing hats on the heads of different oppressors. And yet, as we noted, understanding this truth doesn't automatically make it happen for the simple fact that we are a very part of what it is we oppose. The symbiotic nature of chi. It's often remarked, usually as a justification for not getting involved in a radical movement, that all revolutions just end up replacing one tyrant with another. Well, from a distance, history seems to bear this out. 
The moments where masses of people shake off their chains and govern themselves directly and consciously seem to be episodic and brief. Most of the time, the masses appear to be like a passive herd led around by some elite or another. But this appearance is in fact illusory. People's acquiescence to a regime is not the same thing as them actively supporting it. People will act to change things only when they can see and feel that there exists a working alternative to the status quo. That is, only when they are able to recognize and establish their own new collective chi. But why does this not seem to happen very often? What is the bulwark that holds people back besides the obvious ones of fear and intimidation? These questions can only be answered in practice by knowing first the symbiotic and interdependent nature of all power and its chi. Just as darkness and light depend on one another and are aspects of the same phenomena, so too are opponents in any war or political change. Even the biblical war in heaven was fought between two types of angels, Lucifer in fact meaning being of light. Any struggle is ultimately a dance between the same entity wearing different masks. Just as chi, like water, always seeks the lowest and most common ground, so does any conflict. Conscious or not, both sides search for a new symbiosis by which both can survive and prosper. For this reason, it's impossible for any group of citizens to establish a new society within the framework and institutions of the old regime, since all of their thoughts and hopes are conditioned by it. As Frederick Engels observed so accurately following the aborted European insurrection of 1848, Men always begin revolutions with their eyes fixed on the past. And the Italian rebel Giuseppe Garibaldi, who briefly overturned the papacy in 1870, wrote, One cannot secure the support of the people by calling for an overthrow of society, but instead by assuring them that their security will be preserved by the changes we envision. Unquote. Well, not surprisingly, such pragmatic, backward-looking approaches of power-seeking rebels created no new society, and in fact ended up duplicating the regimes they fought. Nineteenth-century European radicals had not read Sun Tzu, nor for that matter have most of today's so-called rebels. To establish a new collective identity and chi, we must not resist or combat the old regime, but absorb its own chi. Absorb it, as we did in Canada and at the Vatican. And yet, in practice, old habits of thought and deference prevent even the best of us from doing so consistently on our own terms. I continually experience this within all of the groups I work with. While holding to the vision of a new independent republic based on the common law, our best people will still insist on going into the lawless crown or de facto courts to remedy the latest injustice being done against them or others. They cannot simply turn away from the old regime. Their psychological and energetic dependence on what is familiar runs far deeper within them than they understand because one's position within the collective symbiosis is largely invisible to the untrained mind. We can't see it. In short, we're all part of a bigger and hidden group mind, the Bible calls it our angel, that can only be nullified by another collective mind. What this means in practice is that regardless of anyone's degree of personal consciousness, everyone seems to be awaiting in trepidation for something or someone else to make the final break and bring in a new regime. Until then, they accommodate and worry about how to protect themselves and others from the present system. It's therefore hardly surprising that our membership within the Republic and common law movement has remained largely a passive and a waiting one, with people's eyes, feet, and every aspect of their life mired in the past, waiting for somebody else's leadership. 
The only remedy for this immobility is provided collectively through the creation of a new group identity into which we can draw people out of the status quo. And by that moment, when a critical mass is reached, and not only consciousness, but the capacity to act differently emerges among many people. This emergence is always unpredictable, but when it does occur, a huge shift across society happens almost overnight, as history amply demonstrates. And then the new Xi arrangement can become an actuality. In many ways, all that we do today is a preparation for the opportunities created by that moment in time, that upcoming window of action, when a new and free society can come into being from the ground up. And to quote Sun Tzu again, Operations must always be geared to the rapid seizure and exploitation of the key moment of opportunity created in battle, which can never be predicted. The prime purpose of operational commanders is to recognize and act decisively upon such fleeting moments. Unquote. The operational commanders, in our case, are the on-the-ground local community organizers who jo whose job it is is to build the movement by empowering wider numbers with the idea and reality that they can govern themselves according to a new and higher law, completely separate from the existing institutions. How to do it? Well, in that regard, the convening of local people's assemblies is an expression of this long struggle to establish new collective she, because it puts flesh on the idea that fundamental change lies only in our own hands. For as John Adams said in 1791, the revolution may have been effected first in the hearts and minds of the people, but it took shape in our constitutional conventions, where the people learned how to hold and will power for themselves. Well, our course of action is clear if the words of John Adams are to become part of our very thought and fiber. We must gather in this united vision into permanent alternative assemblies, where we covenant to establish a new form of law and government. But then the real battle will begin. For let's be clear that by creating such a new authority alongside the old one, by drawing the chi of the old regime into our sphere, we are entering into a state of permanent civil war, both politically and spiritually. We are drawing a line and separating ourselves unalterably from the past by actively disestablishing the thing called Canada and Crown Law, or any corporate regime anywhere in the world that poses as government. The firmer our resolve and the more people we draw into our new common law public and arrangement, the more peaceful will be this transition. We can only undertake this monumental step collectively through a new le legal and political framework embodied in the people's assemblies. For as legislative bodies, these new assemblies can establish legally the common law courts, sheriff groups, and others that will enforce the laws that are the basis of our new society. The people are the source of all law, government, and sovereign authority. This foundational republican principle means that any group of people, no matter how large, who covenant together under an oath, are a legal body and can formulate and pass laws for themselves. That's why the People's Assemblies, once convened and operate continually, are the basis of the new republic. But those conventions have to operate according to this higher and alternative Xi consciousness. People, especially Canadians, have to learn freedom by beginning to actually practice it and reclaiming their own lost Xi autonomy. The Assemblies provide a sure way for them to do so on any matter of community concern that can be discussed and resolved locally. When people feel the power of taking all matters into their own hands, and they see how impotent in practice the existing authorities are, the Republic will become real as the old regime crumbles. Now in conclusion, we began by observing how the present global tyranny is an energy-sucking parasite whose ultimate consequence will be the eradication of life as we know it on Mother Earth. 
our purpose of shattering that entity and restoring natural law and life to our world cannot be achieved without recognizing and winning back the essential energy that is drained from us every day through our participation in this global machinery of death. Our very thought and action must therefore be geared towards regaining this chi energy by establishing new courts, assemblies, and communities utterly separate from the old institutions to allow people to leave them once and for all. But first they must leave them in their own minds and hearts. Those of you listeners who will be more than hearers of the word but doers as well are like a sharp point of a spear constantly posed for battle. You will create the first wedge through which many others will follow, provided that you remain sharp, clear, and consistent. Because you will form the blueprint of a new society, what you do today and tomorrow is of sacred importance for the future of our people. If you waver or backslide, there will be no such future. For to quote the book of Psalms, number 149, which was cited at the trial of King Charles by the English Parliament in 1649, that established the first common law republic, the book of Psalms wrote, and inspires all of us with these words, For you have been set apart to bind the kings of the earth, and bring to judgment the nobles and the wealthy, and to bring to nothing their pride and their power. This is the task given to the righteous remnant, so that all may know the truth, and stand within the justice of God. This is Kevin Annett. I thank you.